And while I was there at UC Berkeley, I ended up, you know, performing hundreds of scientific experiments, wrote a thesis on the subject and got to a point where I was like, wow, the scientific world knows so much about diabetes and what actually causes it. And what actually causes it is actually using a diet that's high in fat, not a diet that's high in sugar as the sort of like predominant, most repeatable metric or, or repeatable way to induce diabetes. And this has been known since 1920. So we're talking a hundred years of evidence-based research, clearly laid out very, very, very clear that diabetes can be manipulated simply by manipulating the total fat content of your diet. But yet the general public, for some reason, has a completely different vernacular in their head. And the public believes and doctors believe that diabetes is all a game about sugar, 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 carbohydrate, carbohydrate, carbohydrate. And yet, so there's like this, there's this wall between what the research world knows and what the general public does. And I was like, wow, I don't really know why that's the case. Like, this is fascinating. But what if I were to try and create a program that would try and help people living with all forms of diabetes, get rid of diabetes and get rid of insulin resistance. So that's when Mastering Diabetes was born. I ended up meeting Robbie along the way, Doug Graham connected the two of us. We ended up finding that we really enjoyed each other. And then at that point we were like, all right, let's go. Let's try and see if we can really give people like translate the complicated scientific research into understandable terms and try and empower people so that they can have the right lifestyle change program in front of them to, you know, take full control of their health. And we've been doing this for five years and loving every single minute of it. Welcome to that Repair podcast. We're delighted to have you. We really, really are. Thanks for pressing this button. Yeah, this is a, this is a great conversation. One that we really, really enjoyed. We really, really enjoy this. Really, 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 yeah. really weird. Anyway, an Irish thing. And I, I always think of that word, thanks a million, like, because no other country says that. It only comes from that, the word, the Irish one. It's thank lovely you, though. A, a million thanks upon you. Yeah. Whereas I think thanks a million, I say it and like people go, what do you mean by that? Like, and it, but it's, I guess it comes from Irish. So uh, how was Elsie's uh, uh, 12th birthday party in Dundrum Shopping Centre? Oh yeah, my daughter turned 12. My eldest daughter turned 12 there last week and she wanted to go to a shopping centre, like a shopping mall for her birthday with six of her friends and I brought them in and uh, I found a stairwell and I sat in a stairwell and I had a nap and I was the meeting place. And I had a, fr- a friend actually sent me a photo going, I met this this... <laughs> this homeless guy in the corner of the stairwell, and that was you just sitting as a joke. Yeah, it didn't land as well, that, but it was, it yeah, was funny but he, anyway. But it was, uh, anyway, I just sat there for the two hours while they, and I read a book and I had a nap and I texted people and it was glorious because shopping's not really my kind of thing at all. It was funny because I was asking Elsie about it and then she was like, oh, what did you do for your 12th birthday party? And I was like, oh, I had a party and... It was 60s theme. We all dressed up as 60s. And she goes, oh. And I was like, <laughs> she's like, I think the last time I dressed up, I was six. And I was like, oh, is that not the thing anymore? Like my 12th birthday, it was like you always dressed up as a, like parties where like you went and fancy were dress. themed, fancy yeah, dress or whatever. Wow. She's way cooler than me going to like, we're going shopping. Cool. Like I admired that you could, like, because I hate the idea of my kids going to a shopping centre for a party. I'm like, oh, come on, can we move beyond this so I, but culture? But I admire that you just go with it. I really oh, do. It's just, sure, let them go do it. The more you resist, the more they're going to, you know, The persist. more you resist, the more it persists. Yeah. yeah. And then, then there was a sleepover with six girls that night, like Elsie That's and five fun. her friends. And that was, uh, they had a ball. They did like talent shows and all sorts of things. Like, it was really cute. Lucy lovely. referred to your May uh, Stephen as being um, hung over the next day no, on yeah, sugar. Oh, really just so tired. <laughs> Poor little thing. Oh, and hung over on sugar. Yeah, the most exciting reality of what? What did you guys do for your twelfth birthday? Can you remember? No idea. Feels like ten centuries ago. Well, Maybe we twenty went years. Qu- ago. Maybe we went to Quasar. We played laser tag and Bray. 
Which is still there. Well, yeah, sure. I went and played with the kids. Like we went and did it with the kids a few times. And such a gaff. laugh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, speaking of birthday parties and sweets. Oh, okay. Oh. This this week it's a great conversation around diabetes, and it's something that during the conversation, Dave kind of go just talks about how we're living in an environment that is absolutely perfect for just the growth and the proliferation of diabetes. So he talks to wonderful, amazing, amazing men, authors of New York Times bestselling book, uh, Mastering Diabetes. We've got Dr. Cyrus Kambata and Robbie Barbaro, two really amazing guys. They both have type 1 diabetes. They've had it for nearly 20 years each. Um, and they really have dedicated their life to helping people reverse diabetes and reduce their insulin level. He goes through the five different types of diabetes, two of them being autoimmune, three not being... But, but first of all, they tell their stories, which is really compelling. For anyone who doesn't have diabetes, it's just fascinating because it's it's hits such a proliferation in society that almost everyone knows at least one person who's type 2 diabetes or is pre-diabetic or somewhere on that spectrum. Yeah, really, really. Uh, you're in for a treat here, genuinely, and they really empower us in terms of food. They get back to food, lifestyle, and what you can do, and the do's and don'ts. And the myths around diabetes, there's a huge amount of myths and myths, and they love eating fruit. Yeah, they're serious into fruit. They oh, they love mangoes, uh, possibly even more than us. Like, And I, lo- I had a mango this morning at my breakfast, and it's November in Ireland. But um, anyway, we give you two wonderful, wonderful men who you're really going to enjoy, Dr. Sears Kambata and Robbie Bilbao. We know a lot about fruit. And love yeah, and I, I mean, guys, it's just a real pleasure to be talking to you today. I mean, you two are just absolute legends. What you're doing with your farm is so inspiring. Like, I, I, Cyrus knows this. I've been talking about this for years. Like, I want to have a farm. <laughs> and you won't to stop see you guys doing it. it is just incredible. Wow. And are you based in Costa Rica, Bobby, or where are you based? Just because so I Cyrus see Cyrus that- used to live in Costa Rica. I live in Miami right now. Wow. Okay. I oh, see so you're quite close now. You're both in Florida anyway. Correct. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, Miami, geez, that's lovely. Yeah, very nice parts of the world. In terms of, it's almost like a Latin state, Miami, really, isn't it? it pretty much, yeah. yeah. It's like, it's like the English is a second language in, in Miami. It's like mainly <laughs> uh, Spanish with a bunch of Cubans there, I think. That's what I've heard. <laughs> wow, it's cool. Well, it's honestly, it really is a real treat to have the pair of you and your work. Like, literally, I was saying to Steve, the two lads are doing God's work. Like, you really are. Like, you're doing, you're, your work is so... Needed. We, it really is. And and I just salute it so much. Like the pair of us were just chatting about it and your commitment and your focus and your mastering diabetes book and your coaching programs and your just absolute, you know, single single minded focus on helping people recover from diabetes is so needed. Thank you. I mean, uh I, I appreciate you guys saying that. And I feel like it's been a labor of love. I mean, we've been doing this for five years now. And on a certain extent, I'm like, great. I I could just like stop working and like not do this anymore. But on the other hand, I'm like, oh my God, there's so many people to help. Like we're just getting started, you know? So do do you guys also feel the same way where um, now that you've been in it for like 20 years, that there's just like an endless sea of people that are constantly looking for more, you know, for improved lifestyle? Well, it almost seems like it's gone even more extreme. Like it, it seems like the world needs it even more now. You know, like it's just gone to such an extreme in terms of the norm is donuts and pizzas and chocolate bar and sitting on the couch and Twinkies and Netflix. And, you know, it's that's the norm, really. So you're we're quite abnormal or quite countercurrent if you're eating whole foods and, you know, healthy, really. If if you're healthy, you're you're pretty kind of counterculture nearly if you're not taking some type of pill. Agreed. Agreed. So is there, are there a lot of people who are like seeking your guys's help and service and education and knowledge and food? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, I, I think there's probably two hand there is, there's a lot of people that aren't looking for it because you know, they, 
aren't sick. It's usually when people are sick, they're looking for it or when people have kind of somehow come to the realisation that food really impacts your health. So the, the same way which right. you're finding, you probably find that people come to come to you guys when they've got a problem, when they really have, they've just, they've, they're just fed up and someone tells someone or someone's read the book or someone sees something on Instagram or whatever, you know, those are, I'd imagine it's similar roads. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It would be nice if we lived in like, you know, Japan or Asia where people care a little bit more about prevention. But even there, I don't even think that's happening these days. And I think it's probably that we romanticize faraway fields or even greener, you know, the way. And, you know, it's 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 a tough one. It's really tough, like how to create systemic change. Like it's so and in our experience, it's grassroots because that's what we can affect today, today, mm-hmm. whereas to create these system kind of greater at large change takes time, huge amount of time. Because you've been it's in so this- true, and, and I talk about this all the time with Robbie too. Where like we live in a point in, in human history where like there's more information available on a daily basis than there ever has been in, in you know at ever. But yet, despite the fact that there's more information, people are now I think more confused than ever because you go onto any social media platform and you have a whole sea of people who claim to be experts. You know, I can teach you how to solve diabetes. I can teach you how to solve uh, heart disease. I can get you to lose weight. I can get you to have a better gut. And, you know, your average person is looking at all this stuff and you're like, well, you're telling me to be a carnivore and you're telling me to be a plant-based eater. And you're telling me that, you know, diet soda is not bad for me. I, I don't, I don't know. I'm just going to eat whatever I want. Right. And then there just kind of creates this, like this, this confusion and maybe even apathy, which I think is like the worst outcome of all. So true. So true. And you guys, I was just thinking there, like you guys have been doing it for nearly 20 years as well on the diabetes, starting with your own personal transformations and your own journeys. And have you seen over the, the last 20 years that there has been an increase in diabetes, massive increase in type 2 diabetes? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's you know, it's hitting an inflection point and it's like, it's on this very steep upward climb now in terms of like the, the incidence rate. But what's also really interesting is that type 1 diabetes, the autoimmune version, has canonically been um, a fixed percentage of the population. And so you could take a look at any moment in time, you know, prior to the year 2000 and go backwards in time and say, what percentage of the population is living with type one diabetes? And the answer is it's always a fixed percentage. But now over the past 15 years, there's been a 23% increase in people living with type one diabetes, autoimmune. And that's never, that's never happened before. So that right there tells you that autoimmunity isn't necessarily just a purely genetic thing and that it definitely has an environmental component to it. And uh, there's a whole collection of other autoimmune diseases that are also on the rise, as you guys have probably seen as well. Yeah, wow. Jeez, yeah. And, and Cyrus, yes, in terms sure. of, ju- just for anyone listening who doesn't know your, how you came to this, I wonder if I could just tell briefly just and I know, how you got into I this. know the Perry, you've probably told this story a million times, but it's just, it gives such relevance. It gives even just a quick back, like, because both your stories are so, they give such validation as to why you're doing this and why it. It's so important that you do more of this. So sorry to ask you this question, but could you please tell us your own personal, you know, backstories and h- how you've got to really. For sure. Robbie, go for it. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> we, we have shared these stories a million times, but it, it doesn't get old. I actually, I enjoy telling it. <laughs> See how it comes out different each time a little bit. But um, I was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when I was 12 years old, just about to turn 13. So that was January 26th of 2000. So I've been living with type one for over 22 years now. And my older brother was diagnosed with type one diabetes nine years prior to me. So I was quite familiar with the condition. I knew the symptoms and I told my mom, I said, mom, you know what? 
I'm going to the bathroom all the time. I'm thirsty all the time. I'm pretty sure I have diabetes just like Steve. She said, no, no, don't be silly. You don't have diabetes. I said, okay. I kept on living my life. And there was a, about two weeks later, she was in Florida with my dad. I was growing up in Minnesota at that time. And she called to check in and say, how are things going? What's going on? And I said, well, I couldn't sleep last night. I was cramping. She said, okay, go upstairs, use your brother's blood glucose meter and test yourself. And I was well over 400 milligrams per deciliter. I'd have to convert that to your guys' numbers, 400 divided by 18. But um, it's very high. It shouldn't be above 140, all right? So anything above 140 for a non-diabetic at that point in the day was like, that's a problem. So my brother said, you know what? You have type 1 diabetes. Pack your bag. You're going to be in the hospital for a few nights. And I said, okay. We went to the regular doctor, got the official diagnosis. Then my parents flew back the next day. And I remember my dad saying, look, this is just an inconvenience in life. You can still live your life the way you want. Your dreams can come true. Like it's just an inconvenience. So that's really the way I was raised. I, I feel really lucky. The fact that my older brother was diagnosed before me, my parents weren't really alarmed by the whole thing. They just, we all knew what to do. It was just kind of like, okay, this is what you got to do. Take care of yourself. And, and that's fine. So I think that was a blessing for me in my transition to living with type one diabetes. But uh, my parents wanted to make sure we had the best medical care possible. So they took us to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And when I went there, it was every six months, I saw an endocrinologist, I saw a nutritionist, and I saw a psychologist. I had this whole team. And nobody mentioned anything about this concept of reversing insulin resistance or trying to live a life where you're as insulin sensitive as possible so you can make your life with type 1 diabetes as graceful as possible now and you can have the you know reduced risk of complications down the road that was just not a conversation as a matter of fact at that point you know there's the food pyramid they're asking me to follow that they're giving my mom some recipes they say hey make sure he has at least a fruit a day so at dinner time my mom would give me mandarin oranges in a can with a bunch of high fructose corn syrup and when I had strawberries, we made sure to put powdered sugar on top. Like that was my fruit back then. Wow. And so I proceeded to just follow their guidance to the best of my ability. I was, you know, definitely a, still am a type A personality. I can follow instructions and my diabetes management was overall pretty good. My A1C was fine. My numbers were fine. I was a competitive tennis player. So life was good on that front, but I wasn't necessarily the picture of health outside of diabetes, right? I had plantar fasciitis, which was a really frustrating, painful condition in the arches of my feet. So I had to wear these big blue boots at night to do passive stretching so I could still play tennis. I had allergies year round. I would get sick every year. I took Nasonex, I took Claritin D, I would still get sick. And the worst part for me was the acne. I had really, really bad cystic acne and that's frustrating as a teenager. I went to the dermatologist, they did everything they could. They did these laser treatments, they gave me creams, they gave me pills, nothing really solved the problem. Eventually, they put me on Accutane, which is the most serious drug you can possibly take for acne. It's like a last ditch effort. And my mom had to sign a waiver because some people had committed suicide on that drug, but we tried it anyways. And that's just where I was at with my skin. So it was frustrating. And I started to change my life because my dad sold supplements. That was the beginning of me starting to think about food and nutrition, like outside of just eating whatever I want and following a standard American diet. So this uh, was the beginning. And I slowly learned a little bit, oh, you know what? 
organic products are better than non-organic. You know, maybe you can you know buy the bread that doesn't have all the additives and added sugar and just small steps. And eventually in high school, I came across a book called Kevin Trudeau's Natural Cures They Don't Want You to Know About. Do you guys remember this book at all? Was that no, uh, no. did it reach Ireland? No, it sounds cool though. No. It sounds like one Kevin, of those. Kevin, what's his name? Okay. Kevin. Kevin Trudeau. Okay, now listen. I'm not recommending this guy. He went to jail. Like there was fraud. <laughs> like okay. <laughs> there's problems with this guy in this book. Well, I have to, it has to be part of the story because it's a true event. And what he wrote in that book did change my life. And it planted a seed in my mind that, you know what, if I do everything I can to become as healthy as possible from the inside out, maybe I can reverse type one diabetes. So I went on this mission. And, and just to be clear, we don't have a cure for type one diabetes. That's not what we teach at Mastering Diabetes. I haven't figured that out yet, but it sent me on this mission. And I was like, okay, you know what? You know, type one is an autoimmune condition. So basically the antibodies are present. The beta cells inside my pancreas have been damaged. I don't have beta cells that are active and functioning and producing insulin. So therefore I'm living with type one diabetes. And so in order to reverse type one diabetes, we'd have to number one, figure out a way to reduce the antibodies. And then number two, we'd have to find a way to make some new beta cells that can produce insulin. And I still believe this is possible, guys. We're going to figure this out at some point. Uh, my belief coming into it, and I still have it to this day, is you know Roger Bannister was the first person to run a four-minute mile. And before he did that, the smartest people in the world, the greatest scientists said, that's not possible. Your heart will explode. You can't do it. And then once he did it, many people have followed suit and many people have run a four-minute mile. So if you look at human history, like we figure these things out that seem to be impossible in the moment, all right? Anyways, so- I go on this mission. I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm going to take care of my body. I'm going to be so healthy. I'm going to get these stem cells inside my own body to produce new beta cells. And I'm going to do this. And just for clarity, like uh, this isn't a podcast about reversing type one diabetes, but we have cells that die every day. Okay. Like cells die in our body every day. We have stem cells that create new ones. Like for whatever reason, it just happens to be more challenging to create beta cells. <laughs> That's a, a big challenge, but it doesn't mean we can't overcome it. So I go on this mission. I do everything. I start making this like nasty tea. My dad we, and I, we flew to California to meet this Chinese herbalist in like this warehouse. And he's got like fish hanging around. Like it was just like a dirty <laughs> warehouse and he's making these special teas. I'm like, okay, like, look, I'll try it. This guy's apparently some magical healer. He's got like somebody else there who had a, a shoulder injury. He's putting like peanut butter on the guy's shoulder and fixing it. <laughs> like just doing crazy stuff. So anyways, I'm doing that. Uh, I was a freshman at the University of Florida at this point, and this tea smelled so bad, I would go outside, and I had like a portable burner, a portable pot, I would make the tea, and I would drink it, so my roommates <laughs> You were the cool guy in college. <laughs> Absolutely. You know it, man. <laughs> so um, I'm doing that, and then uh, eventually I start following the Weston A. Price style diet, and this is where they're teaching people to have grass-fed beef and to have raw milk because their teaching was that the pasteurization is a problem. And before pasteurization, we just ate raw milk and or we drank raw milk and it was better for us. And I'm like, okay, like I just kept on learning these things that at the time were logical. It's like, okay, well, that makes sense. I'll try this. I'll try this. And you actually, you can't sell raw milk to humans. So I would go to a, a farmer's market and I would sell milk that was for cats. Okay. That's what it was sold to be for cats, but I was drinking it. So you know, just another example of me doing whatever I could, anything 
to try and uh, get this body working efficiently. So none of these things gave me great results. I'm a freshman at the University of Florida and I'm losing weight. I'm not feeling good. I tried a plant-based ketogenic diet in college. So I'm having like lots of greens, lots of celery, lots of olive oil, lots of nuts and seeds. I was, you know, couldn't have bell peppers because they were too high in carbohydrates. Couldn't have carrots, definitely couldn't have fruit. And I'm doing this program and just getting like, unfortunately worse and worse as far as my energy goes. I can't play pickup basketball anymore. And I'm like, I got to do something different. So I go back to a natural and, path. And were you, were you very much always fed the kind of idea that, you know, carbohydrates are the problem, like eat fat uh, and just avoid starch? You know, from the standard American diet stance and when I was going to the Mayo Clinic, they were kind of like in the middle, right? They weren't like, hey, go super, super low carb and do keto. They also weren't like, hey, carbohydrates are your friend. They're like somewhere in the middle, like, oh, just kind of have like a balanced diet. But then when I started doing the plant-based keto thing, no question, like that group was convincing me that yes, carbohydrates are the problem. Don't consume them. Don't have any more than 30 grams of net carbohydrate per day. And that's going to help you, you know, stabilize your blood glucose. And I had gotten into that because there was a story that this guy, Kurt Tyson, who was in a movie called raw for 30 days had reversed type one diabetes. That's how I got into it. And then now in hindsight, something we talk about a lot at mastering diabetes is the difference between type one and type 1.5 diabetes. So you oftentimes find people who are living with type 1.5, they do have a sufficient amount of insulin being produced, they change their diet, and then they can actually get to a point where they don't need to inject any insulin anymore because they're still using, they have enough endogenous insulin production. That's a nuanced detail, but like that's how I got into that in the first place. So that, Whereas guy, so we, that guy probably reversed type 1.5 and not really the correct. Correct. Exactly. And there's other scenarios of that, even in peer reviewed journals where the, the people are like, again, not using the, the distinction between type one and type 1.5 correctly. Whereas like in my case, I've had my C peptide tested. So C peptide is an indicator of how much insulin your own pancreas is producing with insulin and C peptide that produce in a one-to-one -one ratio, they break off and C peptide is easy to test in the blood. So my C peptide is less than 0.01. There's an undetectable amount of C-peptide in my blood. I don't produce any insulin. Um, and so these other people, they, they, they're producing enough. They, they have like, oh, they might have a C-peptide of 1, uh, 1 1.2 or 0.8 or something like that. So anyways, that's how I got into it. I was like, okay, I'm going to do this keto thing because that's going to get me to a point where I don't have to take insulin anymore. And this is where, you know, diabetes gets very confusing. And then we understand why, because my total insulin use did go down. Like if you stop eating carbohydrates and you're living with type one, you don't need to inject as much insulin in, in, in many cases, if you do it like really well, which I did, I really followed this keto diet properly, but my insulin sensitivity got worse. Okay. So the, I was eating 30 grams of total carbohydrate, which comes out to be about 10 grams of glucose. And I, for every one unit of insulin I injected, I could consume one, I could metabolize one gram of glucose. Then I end up switching to the low-fat plant-based whole food diet, which we talk about in our book. And now for every 10 grams of glucose I consume, I need to inject one unit of insulin. So 10 so, times and more. And this is removing fructose and it's removing fiber, which is a very important distinction. And this is kind of 10 times more efficient in essence. That's a 900% wow. improvement in insulin sensitivity right there. And so, um, you know, and the reason I got into it, because it's so funny to say this while listening to a podcast, but it was a podcast that changed my life. 
And I heard this guy, Doug Graham, who talking about how this diet of eating lots of fruits and vegetables could basically improve one's health and also help people eliminate heavy metals from their body, which is something the naturopath had said, hey, you know what, you might have heavy metals. That might be why you're having some problems with your energy and your health. I think you should do some um, chelation therapy. And I was going to do it, but until I heard the podcast, I was like, no, I'm going to try this other thing. So this is around September of 2006. I hear the podcast. And then this guy, Doug Graham, is talking about a book that he has coming out in, um, in December. And so I order the book and I read it. I read that book straight through. Like I did not stop. I just read the whole thing. And in the back of the book, Cyrus is one of the testimonials. <laughs> He's telling his story of living with type one diabetes and how his life got transformed. Like, this is amazing. I, I Google Cyrus's name. I see things on the internet about him. Like the dude is super ripped, like super fit. He's like biking. Um, I forget exactly. There was some like plant-based organization that did a story on Cyrus and it was great. I'm like, this is awesome. Like I'm going for this. So I hire this guy, Doug Graham as my coach. And we become friends and I email him every single day for 90 days straight and learn how to follow a low-fat plant-based whole food diet. And that's when my insulin sensitivity went through the roof. My skin cleared up so fast. My parents were just like shocked. Like my, I remember my dad being like, wow, like your skin has like never looked this good. And I was like, something about this diet is working. Um, I, I have since switching to this diet, I have not had to take any allergy medications and my plantar fasciitis also went away with this lifestyle change. And I attribute that to a decrease in inflammation. So I now take just insulin to manage type 1 diabetes. I've been doing this for over 16 years. My A1C is 5.3%. I wear a continuous glucose monitor. And my time in range over a 90-day period averages about 90%, whereas most type 1s are around 55 60%. So my blood glucose control is great. I use a physiologically normal amount of insulin, about, about 30 units per day. So if you're living with type one, your goal is to follow a lifestyle where you need to inject the same amount of insulin your pancreas would have normally secreted when it was functioning properly. So you guys, you're probably, your pancreas is secreting roughly 25, 30, 35 units of insulin per day. That's roughly what's happening. And that's what we want for type one. So I'm, I'm very happy with this, uh, these results. And it just led me to go and look at the research. I was like, wow, like what's going on in my body? Like, how can I learn more? And got into the research as a student at the University of Florida, was able to access some really, really old papers and learn that we have known what you can do to maximize insulin sensitivity dating back to the 1920s when insulin was discovered. This paper's talking about eating a high carbohydrate diet and making insulin work more efficiently, which is amazing. And I just had this realization that what I experience in my body every single day is the full-on solution to pre-diabetes and type 2 diabetes. Those conditions are caused by insulin resistance. We know the cause. We know the solution. And then, you know, Cyrus and I ended up getting together, creating Mastering Diabetes and putting a focus on really helping people with all types of diabetes reverse insulin resistance. Woo! Woo! So cool. What a cheese. 10 you, out of 10. You tell that story beautifully. Like, I'm sitting here listening to you with a massive grin on my face going, oh, so cool. I feel like I'm getting a bedtime story. This is wonderful. <laughs> you guys are the best. <laughs> really? What a hero. Sounds like a superhero story. <laughs> Thank you. Great job. Mm. 
Dude's and a our stud. next contestant <laughs> is Cyrus. I'm only joking. I'm only joking. I'm only joking. But I wonder whose story would be better. No, I'm joking. <laughs> I'm only joking. I'm, that was a joke. <laughs> Really cool. It's a pretty good one. Get ready. (laughs) Strap yourself in. (laughs) (laughs) So if if we go backwards in time, um, right now it's 2022, and I was diagnosed with uh, not one, not two, but three autoimmune conditions in 2002. So literally 20 years ago. Um, I was a senior in college, and I was just trying to graduate and move on with my life and, you know, become a productive member of society, or at least attempt to be that. And, um, I remember sitting there trying to study for a thermodynamics exam, which is like one of the most boring subjects you could possibly study for. Um, but it's very technically demanding, extremely math intensive, and it requires a lot of brain power. So I was sitting there trying to study. And I remember thinking to myself, like, man, I'm pretty thirsty. So I drink a glass of water, you know, a good 16 ounce glass of water, drink the whole thing, put it down. Then I try and continue studying. And then, you know, five minutes later, I was like, man, I'm pretty thirsty. And then I'll drink another glass of water and I put it back down. And then half an hour later, I'm like, man, I think I'm thirstier. And then this <laughs> process just continued happening over and over and over again. So um, I was drinking so much water. I was drinking between like one and one and a half gallons of water per day. Um, and I was urinating like clockwork every half an hour. Um, and as a result of that, I was, I was sort of like flushing so many fluids that I actually ended up becoming uh, electrolyte depleted. And so um, what ended up happening was that when I would go to sleep, um, I would, I would start cramping, you know, that feeling when you're lying in bed and all of a sudden you're like calf muscle cramps up and it's pretty intense and you have to like kind of wiggle your body and manipulate it so that you can relieve the tension there and then try and like, you know, uh, relax. Well, my, my left calf muscle would cramp up and then I would try and manipulate my body. And then all of a sudden my right butt cheek would cramp. <laughs> and then I was like, Oh no, 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 no. This is not good. And then my left my left uh, hamstring would cramp and all of a sudden my like entire left leg seemed like it was out of commission. Then I was like, Oh, this is terrible. And then my abs would cramp out of nowhere. And there were a couple of moments where I was lying in bed and I was like, what felt like full body rigor mortis. And I was like, what the hell is going on with me? This does not feel right. So I picked up the phone and I called my sister, who's a, a doctor of osteopathy and she's a family practice physician. And I explained the symptomology to her. And I said, Shanaz, what the heck is going on with me? And she knew it instantaneously. She was like, Type one diabetes, drop everything you're doing, go straight to the health center right now. And I was like, what? Diabetes? What are you, what are you talking about? What? I don't have diabetes. And she's like, trust me, I know the symptomology. This is what you got. So um, I dropped everything. I went straight to the health center. I checked myself in. I arrived at the health center. Um, I walk into the nurse's office and she's like, how can I help you today? And I was like, well, here's my symptoms. And she's like, hmm, let me check your blood glucose. So she walks in, she takes a finger stick of blood glucose. She puts it onto a meter. She walks into another room and she comes back about three minutes later. And in the meantime, I was lying on a bed and I blacked out completely black. Uh, she, she knocks on the door, walks back in the room. And as soon as she gets back in the room, I look up and I'm like, okay, where am I? Okay. I'm in a nurse's office. How did I get here? Okay. I'm in the health center. Okay. What is, what is happening? What does she have for me? And she looks at me, she goes, how did you get here? And I was like, I walked and she's like, we need to get you to the ER right now. And I was like, could somebody please explain what the heck is happening to me right now? And she's like, your blood glucose is supposed to be between about 80 and 120, 80 and 130 on a daily basis. Your blood glucose right now is North of 600. You're six times higher than you're supposed to be. This is what's called DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis, life-threatening condition. You're going to the hospital. We're taking you right now. And I was like, fine, take me. Great. 
take me to the hospital. I'm under supervision for 24 hours. I got an IV of saline going into one arm. I got an IV of insulin going to the other arm. And they're injecting small amounts of insulin to try and lower my blood glucose from 600 down to 400, down to 300, down to 200 to just try and get me into a safer, you know, uh, blood glucose concentration. And while I was there, they also did a little bit more detective work, kind of like, you know, house MD, if you saw that show back in the day where they're trying to piece together all of the sort of this medical mystery that had become me over the course of the last, you know, six months or a year. And they were trying to figure out like, well, what other things have happened to you? How can we sort of explain this type one diabetes thing? And it turns out that they, they diagnosed me with three autoimmune conditions. Number one, Hashimoto's hypothyroidism. Number two, alopecia universalis, which is basically no hair. I, mean, I used to have hair on my head. I used to have eyebrows. I used to have eyelashes. I used to have a mustache, you know, like I could grow facial hair, you name it. All of that disappeared overnight, you know, literally just disappeared within the span of a couple of days. And so, and then I got type one diabetes. So three autoimmune conditions all set in within a six month period. And I'm sitting here scratching my head being like, what the, what the heck did I do to myself? Like, am I causing this? Should I, is it, am I drinking too much beer? Like, what, what is it? Am I, am I smoking a little bit too much marijuana? Like if it is, then like, I'll, I'll relax. It's not a big deal. You know, like what, what, what can I do to modify my lifestyle? And so the doctors told me at that time, they said, listen, the only thing that we can tell you is to eat a low carbohydrate diet, because that's the way that you can control your blood glucose living with type one. The only solution is to eat more meat and cheese and fish and bacon and eggs and turkey burgers and peanut butter, because that's a low carb diet. And if you eat a low carb diet, two things are going to happen. Number one, your glucose will stay low. And number two, your insulin use will stay low. And I was like, sounds like a plan. I already like eating those foods anyway. So I'll just eat more of them. So I did that for the first year. And the promise again, was that my glucose and insulin would both stay low, but within a month, two months, my glucose was a disaster, complete disaster. So I have to use, start using a blood, uh, a, a blood glucose meter on a daily basis, five, six, seven, 10 times a day to check my glucose before breakfast and after breakfast and before lunch and after lunch and before I exercise, before I go to sleep and just trying to make sense of, you know, how to control my blood glucose. And it seemed like no matter what time of the day I checked my blood glucose, no matter what I had eaten, no matter what I was about to eat, no matter how much exercise I had already gotten, my blood glucose was literally a random number. Okay. The number could be anywhere from like a 70 or all the way upwards of like a 450. Wow. And it was like this, this arcade game. I mean, I literally would be like, all right, here we go. Put this into this meter. And I come back with a number. I'm like, great. 370. What the heck caused that? I had no idea. And then 10 minutes later, I would check it again. Be like, great, 320. And then two hours later, I would check it. Be like, great, 286. What am I supposed to do? I have no idea. So I was playing this game of trying to control my blood glucose. It was frustrating. And uh, after about a year of doing this, not only was my glucose hard to control, not only did my insulin use double, not only was it hard for me to uh, just try and like make sense of my health, but my anxiety level had risen. I started to become a little bit depressed. And the worst part for me was that I couldn't exercise the way that I wanted to. So I'd go play a game of soccer. It'd take me four days to recover. I'd go to the gym. It would take me three days to recover. And I was like, man, I feel like I'm 80 years old right now. This is terrible. Wow. So I ended up trying to change my lifestyle. And I came across this idea of eating a plant-based diet. So I met Doug Graham because a friend of mine had told me to go talk with him. And, you know, I said, Hey, can you help me out? And he said, yeah, sure. I'm going to, I'm going to knock your socks off. You're, your mind is going to be blown. So under his supervision, I went and hung out with him in person for a week. And he basically showed me 
how to switch over to eating a 100% plant-based diet. So I literally got rid of all animal products overnight and I switched over to eating nothing but fruits and vegetables. That's it. 100% raw. So no grains, no lentils, no beans. Just exactly right. No, no legumes, no grains, nothing, just literally fruits and vegetables. And, um, I was nervous because, you know, the traditional world had told me that if I were to eat a lot of carbohydrate energy, which you would get in fruits and vegetables, then well, guess what? Your insulin use is going to go through the roof and your blood glucose is going to go up. So I was anticipating that my glucose was going to become harder to control and that my insulin use would continue to climb. But as soon as I started eating the way that he described, which was actually eating a hundred percent plant-based diet that was low in fat. Okay. That was the kicker low in fat, yet high in carbohydrate. When I started eating that way, all of a sudden my blood glucose came down and it came down very quickly. And as a result of that, I had to start in injecting less insulin. So within one week of being under his supervision, my, my, uh, insulin use went from being about 42 to 45 units per day, all the way back down to 25 units per day, which is a huge change in a very short period of time. So I was so excited by this. I felt better. I was more hydrated. I could sleep better. I could return to sports again. I could play soccer. I could get on my bike. I could, I just felt like a little puppy that all of a sudden I was like, okay, cool. Sweet. Let's go play. Let's go do some fun stuff. Like you can cut your um, life back again. Like you were gone from being an 80 year old to suddenly you were back in your twenties. It was like, I can do this. Exactly right. I mean, it literally felt like I was reborn. I mean, it's like, if I was an iPhone, I literally plugged it into the wall and I just got a full battery charge. And I was like, boom, here we go. Let's go. This is, this is what it's supposed to feel like in my twenties. So, um, I was so excited by this whole process that was unfolding inside of my body that I was like, wait a minute, now I'm hungry for science. Like what the heck is going on inside of me? Because this is pretty interesting. So I then studied to, so that I could go get a PhD in nutritional biochemistry because I just like science. I really do. So I studied for three or four years to do all the prerequisite coursework. Then I applied, I went to UC Berkeley for five years and I studied, uh, the ins and outs of insulin resistance what causes insulin resistance, what reverses insulin resistance, and, and how can you sort of manipulate diabetes to your advantage using your food as medicine. And while I was there at UC Berkeley, I ended up you know, performing hundreds of scientific experiments, wrote a thesis on the subject, and got to a point where I was like, wow, the scientific world knows so much about diabetes and what actually causes it. And what actually causes it is actually using a diet that's high in fat, not a diet that's high in sugar as the sort of like predominant, most repeatable metric or, or repeatable way to induce diabetes. And this has been known since 1920. So we're talking a hundred years of evidence-based research clearly laid out very, very, very clear that diabetes can be manipulated simply by manipulating the total fat content of your diet. But yet the general public for some reason has a completely different vernacular in their head. And the public believes and doctors believe that diabetes is all a game about sugar, 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 carbohydrate, carbohydrate, carbohydrate. And yet, so there's like this, this is wall between what the research world knows and what the general public does. And I was like, wow, I don't really know why that's the case. Like, this is fascinating. But what if I were to try and create a program that would try and help people living with all forms of diabetes, get rid of diabetes and get rid of insulin resistance. So that's when mastering diabetes was born. I ended up meeting Robbie along the way, Doug Graham connected the two of us. We ended up finding that we really enjoyed each other. And then at that point we were like, all right, let's go. Let's try and see if we can really give people like translate the complicated scientific research into understandable terms and try and empower people so that they can have the right lifestyle change program in front of them to, you know, take full control of their health. And we've been doing this for five years and loving every single minute of it.
And you've written a New York Times bestseller on it, so which is a massive success. So really well done on that. Cold Master. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, that was a that was a labor of love because that book that took like three plus years to write. But we had a feeling that the more time and effort we put into it. I mean, you guys know this when you when you write books, you just you just sink every ounce of effort into it. And, uh, you know, if you create a masterpiece, um, you know, you can really change some lives. May. And then why do you think there's this chasm between um, the idea that the medical literature is all about reducing the amount of starch or carbohydrate or sugar? Not so much the medical literature. It's more the cultural norm is that like, you know, if I asked anyone in the street, what's diabetes? And they go, oh, I'm not really sure. You just need to stop eating sugar or maybe it's something to do with carbohydrate. Like that's the common, the average man's layperson's. Whereas what you find in medical literature and your own personal, ex- both of your experience is it's a fat related. Could you get dig into that? Because that's, that's the first myth that I think we need to bust here. Sorry to interrupt you, Dave. I'll let you get back to that fascinating question shortly. You might be aware of the sad statistic that Ireland is the least forested country in Europe. We like to turn that stat in its head and think that Ireland has the biggest opportunity for reforestation in Europe. We're in a global climate and biodiversity crisis. After centuries of deforestation, most of Irish ancient woodland is gone, completely gone. So we want to tell you about our friend Wolfgang, founded by our friend Al Coleman, who used to work with us and... Dave went to college with. He's an absolute legend. But they're doing amazing work for the environment. Wolfgang Reforest have bought 51 acres and are planting only certified native Irish trees. You can see the benefits already at Toomna Finog Woods in County Wicklow. Should all 51 acres get planted, that would mean a 30% increase in the forest footprint. So how about going green this Christmas by giving the gift of a tree instead of possession that people probably don't need with Wolfgang Reforest. It only takes three minutes to gift a tree on wolfgangreforest.ie. So that's W-O-L-F-G-A-N-G-R-E-F-O-R-E-S-T dot I-E. So that's WolfgangReforest.ie. Such a great project to support. Yeah, literally it'll take you three minutes to give the gift of a tree this Christmas. Check it out. So I guess the question is like, why is there a discrepancy between what the scientific world knows and what the general public does? Absolutely. And to do with fat and carbohydrate. Yeah. Okay. All right. So to answer the first question, like why is there a discrepancy? I think part of the reason there's a discrepancy is because Um, the pharmaceutical industry exists and the pharmaceutical industry, uh, thrives on perpetuating conflict and making sure that people stay diseased for a long period of time. Right. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but this is just something that, you know, this is their business model. And so if the pharmaceutical industry can find a way to confuse people and, or find a way to perpetuate a disease process and not really ever solve it, then they have customers for life. Right. So I think that's part of the problem. Number one, not problem, but part of the problem. Number two is that you doctors are these authoritative figures in society. They wear white lab coats. They make a lot of money. They drive nice cars and people are like, oh, my doctor, whatever my doctor says I'm going to do. Right. But it turns out that if you ask doctors, you take a hundred doctors, put them in a room and say, hey, how much nutrition education did you get when you were in medical school? And the answer is I didn't get any nutrition education or I got one lecture and in that one lecture, they talked about protein, uh, protein deficiency and or scurvy, right? I mean, these like these, these um, they're not chronic diseases and they're diseases that used to affect people a hundred years ago. They're not like, it's not evidence-based modern uh, nutrition. And so as a result of that, doctors just don't have the tool set. They never learn the language. They don't know the, uh, the, the science. And as a result of that, when you go to your doctor's office and you end up with diabetes or hypertension or high cholesterol or dementia or chronic kidney disease or fatty liver disease, your doctor literally just does not know how to educate you about what foods to put in your mouth. 
so that you can reverse those disease processes. Instead, they look at it and go, huh, well, a pharmaceutical rep came into my office the other day and told me that there's this thing called metformin. How about you take metformin? Because that's the standard of care. And that's what I have to tell you, because if I don't, then my medical license is in question. Right. So the entire system is designed for doctors to basically be the conduit to get pharmaceutical medications into the hands of people to try and, you know, quote unquote, manage diseases. And it just doesn't really work. Yeah. Right. So that I think is the problem. Yeah. OK. Right. Right. Totally get that. Now, let, we got to get into the weeds of fat versus carbohydrate, because that's the yeah. big, the big, the big myth here now in the room. OK, here we go. So um <clears throat> It is a true statement. If I were to take you guys and put you into a scientific study and I were to feed you a carbohydrate that came from refined sources, I'm talking cookies, crackers, chips, breads, pastas, sodas, sugar, sweetened beverages, artificial sweeteners. Guess what? Your glucose would go up. Your blood pressure would probably go up. Your liver would become insulin resistant and you may develop insulin resistance and or diabetes over the course of time. Okay. It will, it, it is very likely to happen, but if I were to take you guys and I were to feed you a high fat diet instead, and the high fat diet contains primarily fat that comes from animal sources like red meat, white meat, chicken, fish, dairy products, ice cream. Um, if I were to feed you those foods instead, I would develop, you would develop insulin resistance faster. You would develop diabetes faster. You would become overweight faster. You would develop hypertension and high cholesterol faster. And I could repeat those processes quicker and I could get much more repeatable results if I were to feed you a high fat diet than if I were to feed you a high sugar diet. Okay? Wow. So Didn't both of them. Coming. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. This is kind of like a big epiphany that I had to learn when I was in graduate school. Um, both of those diets will eventually lead to increased chronic disease risk. A high fat diet is a, is a faster avenue to get you there. And it turns out that that's the diet that most people are eating. That's the diet that has become popular, whether it's a low carbohydrate diet, whether it's an Atkins diet, a paleo diet, a ketogenic diet, a carnivorous diet, high fat diets are popular. People want to be told that they can eat high fat foods like butter and mayonnaise and coconut oil. And as a result of that, they're actually going to become healthier. So there's there's this pervasive um, behavior in society to eat a high fat diet, and people don't recognize that it's actually what is accelerating the development of many chronic diseases. Now, when you consume fat from the outside world, what you're actually consuming is a molecule called a triglyceride. So you can think of a triglyceride as basically being three fatty acids that are attached to a glycerol backbone. Okay, so glycerol is basically a uh, is a carbohydrate, and three fatty acids are basically covalently bound to it, and it has this sort of like you know it looks like kind of like an E. That's like the structure of it. So you consume that form of fatty acid because that's the storage form in nature. You eat those triglycerides. They travel down your esophagus. They get inside of your stomach. They start to get unfolded a little bit inside of your stomach, and then they get inside of your small intestine. Your small intestine is where the bulk of all nutrient digestion and absorption happens. So your small intestine is basically a reactor. And inside of that reactor, you have a whole bunch of enzymes that are secreted into that chamber from your liver, from your pancreas, and from your small intestine itself. So these tissues manufacture digestive enzymes. Those enzymes act upon this triglyceride molecule, and they, they, they separate the glycerol from the fatty acids. And the fatty acids then get absorbed right through the wall of your small intestine, and they end up getting put into these little spaceships that are called chylomicron particles. So in my hand, I have this little case right here. Imagine this is a little chylomicron particle. Inside of this, the fatty acids that I just ate have now been put into here. 
There are billions of these or trillions of these inside of your blood. And as soon as they import fatty acids from your food, they then circulate all throughout your cardiovascular system. And their mission is to try and deliver these fatty acids to their end destination. The question is, what's the end destination? Okay. In an ideal world, the best place to put fatty acids is in your adipose tissue, your, your fat tissue, because your fat tissue is specifically designed to absorb fat when present inside of those chylomicron particles. So it's, it's a perfect tissue that's enzymatically and mechanically designed to be able to say, hey, there's fat that comes in those chylomicrons. Let me pull it in. Let me lock it back up into another triglyceride molecule. And I'm just going to sit there and hold on to it for a long period of time. That long period of time could be 24 hours. It could be months. It could be years. It depends on a number of different factors. But the fat tissue is basically a great place. It's the Costco warehouse of fat. The problem is that if you're eating too much fat, what ends up happening is that a lot of the fatty acids end up getting put inside of your adipose tissue, but then there's a spillover and the spillover goes inside of your liver and inside of your muscle. That's where the problem starts. So the spillover that goes inside of your liver and spillover that goes inside of your muscle can easily overwhelm both your liver and muscle. And this happens because from a biological design, your liver and muscle are only capable of storing small amounts of fat. So you're, your adipose tissue, your fat tissue is, is a reservoir that can absorb very large amounts of fatty acid molecules and put them into triglycerides. Your liver can do it in a tiny, tiny amount and your muscle can do it to a tiny, tiny amount. So when you're eating a diet that contains a lot of fat and you have bacon and eggs for breakfast today, and then maybe you have some sausage for dinner, and then you have more coconut oil inside of your coffee. You have some mayonnaise, you have some cheese, you have some butter, you have some eggs again, and you repeat this process day in, day out, day in, day out. What ends up happening is that the fatty acids that get spilled over into your liver and muscle begin to accumulate and get larger and larger and larger. So now your fat, your, your, your muscle tissue and your liver tissue have over accumulated and they're now storing excess quantities of total fat. Here's the problem in this scenario. Your liver and muscle are in a stress state because they are now absorbing excess fat from the blood, which is beyond their biological design. And they don't, they, they're trying to block it from coming in, but they can't do it. They don't have the, the, the weaponry or the tools to be able to stop it completely. So the thing that they do is they say, listen, if I'm going to try and block more of this stuff from coming in, what if I were to just stop communicating with insulin? Okay. What if I initiate a self-defense mechanism and the self-defense mechanism isn't direct to fat, but instead it's indirect to insulin. And the reason why that's going to be an effective strategy is because insulin is the most powerful anabolic hormone in your body. Insulin goes knock, knock. There's glucose in the blood. There's amino acids in the blood. There's fatty acids in the blood. Do you want to take it up right now? It's, it's all just a singling molecule. So if, if you're a liver or muscle cell, and you hear the knock, knock, knock from insulin and insulin says, Hey, by the way, there's stuff in the blood. Do you want to take it up? And you're like, Oh no, 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 no. I'm playing insulin resistance right now. I'm playing insulin rejection. Like go away. I am not talking to you right now. I got stuff inside of me. There is a metabolic traffic jam that I have to clear up first before I'm going to take any more stuff. See you later. So that's what ends up happening is they basically create a self-defense mechanism to prevent insulin from talking to them. So, so as a result so of that, the when insulin, insulin resistance. Good example. I, I get it. I, I really get it. Nice analogy. Okay. Good, good, good. So this is insulin resistance. I think of insulin resistance as the same thing as insulin rejection. 
Okay. Insulin, knock, knock. There's stuff in the blood. Do you want to take it up? Liver and muscle say, nope, I can't take it up because there's a whole bunch of fatty acid material that has already accumulated in me. I didn't ask for this stuff. Let me get rid of this stuff first. And then I can talk to you. So as a result of that, insulin gets trapped in your blood. And that leads to hyperinsulinemia, meaning your insulin concentrations go up because insulin cannot do its job anymore. And it literally is trapped inside of your blood. That's a problem. That's a huge problem because hyperinsulinemia is the number one risk factor for heart disease. Wow. Number one risk factor for heart disease. So if you increase your insulin concentrations over the course of time, you are setting yourself up for a future cardiac event. Not good. Number two, if insulin knocks on the door and says, hey, there's glucose and fatty acids and amino acids in the blood, do you want to take it up? And the cells are not responding and insulin accumulates, then guess what? Glucose can't get inside of cells as well. So glucose is like, well, screw it. Now I'm trapped. And glucose ends up getting trapped inside of your blood. And as a result of that, your glucose concentrations begin to rise as well. So classic example is that somebody who's eating a low carbohydrate diet, a ketogenic diet, let's say, they're eating, you know, uh, bacon or fish or uh, red meat, and then they do it again for lunch, they do it again for dinner, and they've developed this baseline um, amount of, uh, they, they've, they've eaten themselves into a metabolic state of insulin resistance. In that scenario, if they try and eat one potato, something very small, you know, like 20 grams of carbohydrate, maybe one banana, maybe an apple, maybe a tiny little bowl of quinoa, right? They try and eat something that has carbohydrate energy. The glucose from those carbohydrates tries to get inside of their liver and muscle. The glucose gets trapped. The insulin gets trapped. And as a result of that, two hours after eating that bowl of quinoa or the black beans or the pear, they look at it and they're like, huh, well, my blood glucose says, my, my blood glucose meter says that my blood glucose is now high. Before the meal, I was at 100. Now I ate an apple and my blood glucose is at 250. Bad apple bad banana. I told you I can't eat carbohydrates. Carbohydrates are the problem. I told you, I just proved it to you. So I can't eat carbohydrates anymore. So it further reinforces this idea that the carbohydrate was the problem when in reality, carbohydrate is just the messenger wow. and the carbohydrate is stuck inside of a symphony that was caused by another metabolic traffic. It's like a whodunit movie. Excess fat. It's like trying to figure out a whodunit movie, which one's to blame. And it seems like carbohydrate, poor out carbohydrates getting the rap, but really. Because it walked last into fast. the room. It's fat over a long-term basis. That's exactly right. It. It's the fat. Yeah. And so if we go all the way backwards to the original question that you had asked is like, well, you know, why does the general public think that it's all about carbohydrates and sugar? Here's why. It's the simplest explanation. Yeah. It literally is, right? If I were to try and explain to somebody in the general public, oh, it was a fat first, and then there's a metabolic traffic jam and yada, yada, people are just like, what the hell are you talking about? I don't understand. But if you literally tell them, no, you eat an apple and your blood glucose goes up. Therefore, the apple is the problem. They're like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's Okay, easy. so it's usually, you know, the simplest explanation is the one that becomes the most popular. And as a result of that, that's the sort of, that's the message that permeates through society. And unfortunately, it's just a fragment of the overall picture. Brilliant. Question for you. Okay, since 1970s, like that's when industrial food production really kicked off. And I think that's when the, the modern American diet really kicked off. Pre-1970s, it was more, you know, people grew a lot of their own veg. It was a bit more, you know, 
there wasn't as much meat wasn't as cheap processed foods weren't as meat as and I imagine our diet had far less fat in it I wonder over the last 50 years has there been a massive increase in type 2 diabetes because how I understand it is type 1 is autoimmune whereas the other four categories are more um, they're just you know they happen over time yeah so slight clarification type 1 and 1.5 are both autoimmune but then prediabetes type 2 gestational uh, those three are non-autoimmune to, to your point. And so the answer, you know, has there been a significant rise in diabetes post 1970? The answer is absolutely. There's no question about it. I mean, you can literally take a look at the actual like incidence rate of diabetes over the course of time. And you can see that there's an inflection. There's literally like a, a moment in time where all of a sudden the rate of diabetes, um, new diabetes cases has taken a very sharp upwards turn. And that is the modern era in which we live. I don't know exactly which year that happened in, but the fact of the matter is, yeah, the more industrialization there is, the more packaged and processed foods that are on the shelves, the more food manufacturers can entice us into buying uh, packaged ultra processed foods, I'll say, the, the more unhealthy we become as a society. It's not a very, you know, it's not a very hard concept at all. Yeah, it really seems like the uh, I absolute- got some, I got some statistics for you guys. Great. About this. So the prevalence of diagnosed diabetes increased from 0.93% in 1958 to 7.4% in 2015. And so this stats came from 2015 from the CDC. 23.4 million people have diagnosed diabetes. Wow. Now that doesn't count for the over 80 million who are living with pre-diabetes, but don't even know it yet. Wow. It's like, it really does seem like the absolute perfect storm. Cause here we go. We've got, we live in capitalism. We've got pharmaceutical companies, which are the most, some of the most powerful companies in the world. And they make money by people being sick. And obviously they want to help people cause they care, but they also want to make money to provide, you know, for shareholders. We've got food companies that make money cause they get grants off, you know, soy and corn and high fructose syrup and all these type of things. So they tend to make foods out of this. You know, stores, they can store junk food and fatty food. It lasts a lot longer than fresh food. Like, it seems like society, we've created this perfect storm that really, you know, to unassuming average people like any one of us, you know, diabetes is uh, quite a common thing to stumble upon because it's easier to eat hamburgers, it's easier to eat pizza, it's easier to drink sodas than it is to go eat papayas and mangoes and cook a whole food plant-based meal. Yeah, it's very true. I mean, you can think of basically diabetes. Uh, I'll put diabetes, heart disease, and cancer as like the sort of like three elephants in the room, the three like most prevalent uh, chronic diseases in our world today. Um, they're just they're just results of the modern world in which we live. And um, you're right. There's a perfect storm between the pharmaceutical industry, between the medical industry, between the food uh, manufacturers. And uh, now I'm going to throw social media into it too, because social media has just confused a whole bunch of people. And as a result of that, it's like, unless you are, you're acting as like a vigilante to like go out of your way to seek out information that is truly evidence-based, that has a significant scientific backing by reading book after book, after book, after book, how the heck are you supposed to know what to do? So ultimately the consumer is the one that gets screwed and they're the one that ends up losing their health and spending a lot of money over the course of time in order to fix problems that don't need to exist in the first place. Totally. So just a, a couple of quick fire uh, myths. Type 2 diabetes is reversible. Yes. Correct. Type 2 diabetes is reversible in the overwhelming majority of all cases. Nobody knows the real answer, but we're going to call it somewhere between 80 and 90% of all cases of type 2 diabetes 
are reversible. The other 10 to 20% of all cases are not reversible simply because an individual's pancreas has burned out and can no longer manufacture a sufficient amount of insulin. But again, that's the minority. The majority, the answer is absolutely. And it can be quite quick, can't it? Like, you know, I remember reading Neil Bernard stuff years ago and I think it was quite quick. It was something like a month or a number of months, depending on how strict someone sticks to it. But you can typically come off insulin as a type 2 diabetic in 80% of the cases, as you're saying. Is that true? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. There's no, I mean, we see that same thing in the Mastering Diabetes program where, you know, people have been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes and they've been told that they're going to have to be using insulin for the rest of their life. They start, you know, they come to us and they're like, man, I'm using 60 units of insulin per day living with type 2 diabetes and I'm, you know, 75 pounds overweight. And so we enroll them in our program. They start receiving coaching and lifestyle change modification. And they go from 75 pounds overweight down to 50 pounds overweight, right? So they lose 25 pounds over the course of, let's say, three months. And just that weight changes something. They're still overweight. Don't get me wrong. But just that weight change itself drops their A1C, drops their blood pressure, drops their cholesterol to a point where they're sort of like hovering on even having diabetes at all. And then if they continue to lose weight from 50 pounds overweight to 40, from 40 to 30, before you know it, they hit their ideal body weight, boom, all of a sudden it's like they're reborn again in the same way that I felt it and Robbie felt it. Back so, the, the so there's a huge correlation between weight, like BMI and our body weight and diabetes. Yeah, actually uh, in the early 2000s, there was a paper published in the New England Journal of Medicine that compared lifestyle change to the use of metformin. And what they determined was that if you uh, perform lifestyle change and lose approximately 7% of your body weight, okay, this is for individuals who are living with pre-diabetes who haven't actually been technically diagnosed with type 2. But in the pre-diabetes state, if you lose 7% of your body mass, that is enough to double the effects of metformin as the leading diabetes drug. Wow. So it is far more effective to lose weight than it is to use a pharmaceutical medication because that doesn't solve problems. But weight loss unto itself puts you back into the non-diabetic category and you can stay there as long as you maintain your body weight. So to add into that again. perfect storm thing, we've got the absolute proliferation of junk foods and the absolute addictiveness of them and the pressure of modern society. And we're looking for instant pleasure all the time or the avoidance of pain. And junk foods kind of satisfy on a very temporary basis that they give us these short-term dopamine hits. So it's like it is, society is just, it's so challenging. Like particularly in terms You're of health right. conditions. Like it's, when I'm looking at it here, I'm going, oh my God, like it's not surprising in any sense that diabetes and, and obesity, like because obesity has been on the rise massively over the last 20, 30 years. For sure, for sure. So let me add one more, <laughs> one more dimension to this argument here then. Uh, there's another thing that, that I think the plant-based world is sort of up against, which is the, um, the rapid weight loss that occurs when you, when you start eating a ketogenic diet, have you guys talked to friends or family members that have started to eat a ketogenic diet? And they're like, Oh my God, I just lost 15 pounds without even trying. I lost 30 pounds. I'm going to stick on this ketogenic thing. Have you seen that before? I've seen it. I've heard though over a period of time, it's really hard to sustain and there's no kind of medium to long-term effects of ketogenic diets. Agreed. Agreed. But if you're the end user and you're like, oh, okay, cool. I'm 30 pounds overweight. I need to make a quick change because I got to look good for the summer or I got to go to that wedding or, you know, like I, I just want instant gratification because that's the way the modern society moves. It's very easy to gravitate towards a ketogenic diet. 
to eat a ketogenic diet. And then boom, you start to lose weight. And the first week you lose four pounds. And the next week you lose three more pounds. And the next week you lose two more pounds. And before you know it, you're like, holy crap, I just lost 10 pounds last month. And then it continues to snowball over the course of the first couple of months. Right. So from the end user's perspective, they're like, oh, well, this ketogenic thing is awesome. I just lost a bunch of weight. I'm going to continue to do it. Right. Despite the fact that, like you're saying, the medium to long-term research is very poor. In fact, there's like a, there's a, there's a giant chasm in the, uh, in the evidence-based research about long-term effects of ketogenic diets. Number one, they're not sustainable. Number two, they significantly increase your LDL cholesterol, but most people don't care about that. Cause they're like, Hey, I need to lose weight and I need to lose weight. Now give me an instant gratification. And so, because so many people want fast results, a ketogenic diet becomes a very natural decision. Yeah, wow. And Unfortunately, okay, we got to break it down into you, you, you know, what you found your master in diabetes program because we we reading we've talked about the massive environmental issues and we've talked about fat versus carbs, you know, we've we talked about ketogenic. So straight into your system. So my first observation is there's lots of fruit. Like you guys eat a lot of fruit. Like you really do, and that's the first thing that people go if they click on your Instagram. They go, oh my god, like there's there's Bobby eating like a bowl of papaya and mango, and like is fruit not really bad if you're a diabetic? Like that's the first one we got to talk about. Yeah, um, fruit is your best friend if you're looking to reverse insulin resistance, but there are nuances around the topic. When you are first coming to this program, right, and you're you're likely in a very insulin resistant state it's important to understand that you're not just going to go from being very insulin resistant and the next day eat that bowl of fruit you're talking about that we just posted the other day and all of a sudden see some remarkable improvement in your blood glucose control. As a matter of fact, just like Cyrus talked about earlier, no, you're going to see a spike. But, you're, and, but it wasn't the fruit's fault, right? It was the fact that you're still in an insulin resistant state. So we teach people in our program how to make changes, especially during the transition period, to minimize blood glucose spikes. So in the beginning, if you want to enjoy fruit, there's a few key things to do. Number one, include greens or non-starchy vegetables with your fruit. Okay, so in that video, I had a bunch of arugula I was eating. So greens or non-starchy vegetables are essential for mitigating blood glucose spikes, especially when you're very insulin resistant. The other uh, must do here is, it's like we call these non-negotiables in our coaching program is you got to eat slowly. In our society, we eat a little bit too fast, right? So take your time, chew your food, enjoy it. Don't like scarf it down as fast as possible. Again, in that video, I ate that meal over the course of 30 minutes. I know. And that and I, was look, thing, I was looking at that going, oh my God, 30 minutes, that can't be true. And then I was like, wow, good on you. That's a really good message to be telling people to slow down. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And the third component here is you got to move your body. So just walking either before or after a meal has a dramatic impact on your blood glucose control. Again, especially when you're coming into this insulin resistant, you wanna stack the cards in your favor to mitigate high readings as you become more insulin sensitive and don't have to be so diligent in this process. So those are three important things. All of those while simultaneously reducing your fat intake. That is gonna be key here. So they're simultaneously happening. You're improving your insulin sensitivity and your ability to metabolize these foods. Now, why is fruit an overall great food for people living with diabetes? Number one, it's low in fat. Number two, it's high in water content. Number three, it's high in fiber. And so again, you see that big bowl of fruit I'm eating on the Instagram video that looks like a ton of food. Like 
so many comments like, how can you eat all that? If I ate all that, I'd be on the toilet in like five minutes. <laughs> it just looks like a lot. But in reality, it's a bunch of water. It's I I the best way you can get the cleanest, purest form of water is to consume water-rich plant-based foods because nature filtered that water. And so, for example, um, I think papaya by mass is over 80% water. Um, you know, lettuce is definitely, it's like 95% water by mass. Um, but even bananas are over 75% water by mass. So these big bowls, it's really just a lot of water content. Even like when, you know, you're steaming potatoes or you're having soups, um, you're making pastas, like you're, you're cooking the pasta in the water. So you're hydrating that food. It's a very high water content diet. And so it's those components. Plus the fruits are full of, uh, vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytochemicals, these nutrients are key and it creates a package. And it's this package that is completely different than processed sugar. You cannot compare the sugar and the glucose and the fructose and the sucrose you get in whole fruits to table sugar, high fructose corn syrup, beverages. There's a lot of misleading studies out there. You'll see on the, you know, on social media, like Cyrus was talking about, people say, oh, like sugar is sugar. Here's a research study saying how bad fructose is for your health and it's going to cause liver problems and all this stuff. And you look at the study and they fed the, the participants sugar-laden beverages, like it's processed fructose. They did not feed them fruit. I read, and I read. When you look at actual research. I, I, yeah, sorry, you know, if I read something yesterday where it was saying, it was saying how much fruit is too much fruit. And it was saying that it was a piece of research that, where they had people for 12 weeks and 24 weeks eat at least 20 servings of fruit a day. So that was about 200 grams of fructose a day. So about eight, the equivalent of eight cans of soda a day coming from fruit, but it was obviously packed with all the fiber and they wanted to see the effect of long-term health, like medium to long-term health. And they found after 12 and 24 months that there was positive increases in all their health markers, their cholesterol level drops, their blood pressure dropped, their weight dropped. The only negative effect was that... Um, the largest ever bowel movement was recorded in a dietary intervention. <laughs> they went to the bathroom And that more was often. it. That was it. So, so, so the, the, their conclusion was that there is no upper limit in terms of fruit. It is, it is absolutely, you know, it's everyone's system is slightly different. And as you said, some people might need to go to the toilet a little more than others, but it's, it's wonderful. But, but even just for somebody who's listening now and they're going, wow, that's so interesting. My dad is pre-diabetic. I'm pre-diabetic. Like everyone knows someone in their near family that's kind of talks about diabetics they've gestational diabetics, they're pre-diabetic. What would you say to someone starting straight away? Like, cause you see people every day in day out on your mastering di diabetes program. What, what do you start people with? Cause you've mentioned low fat, whole food, plant-based diet. And then you've talked briefly about fruit. How do people start? Okay, cool. So I want people to think about there's four different categories of foods that uh, we consider to be called green light foods, where you can eat them without worrying about how much you're consuming. Number one, fruit. Number two, starchy vegetables like potatoes and yams and squashes, things that grow on the ground, okay? Fruits, starchy vegetables. The third is legumes, beans, peas, and lentils. And then the fourth is whole grains, okay? Minimally processed or unprocessed grains, okay? Fruits, starchy vegetables, legumes, whole grains. If you concentrate on eating those foods and they become the bulk of your calorie intake, you can almost kiss chronic disease goodbye, okay? In addition to that, you certainly would want to eat some non-starchy vegetables, some green leafy vegetables, some mushrooms, some herbs and spices for sure. But from a caloric perspective, they become a very small contributor. And from a caloric perspective, you're looking for the fruits, the vegetables, the, the, uh, sorry, the starchy vegetables, the, the legumes and the whole grains. Now 
if you're looking to start today or tomorrow, well, what am I supposed to do? Okay. Here's my recommendation to you. Number one, move slowly. Do not try and switch over to eating a fully plant-based diet in the next week or two weeks or three weeks or four weeks. It's just too fast. We teach people how to create long-term sustainable habits and habit change just takes a while. Okay. So rather than thinking to yourself, like, okay, I really want to make this full dietary transition over the course of the next 21 days or 30 days, I would say, no, 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 do it over six months. There's no race at all. Okay. And just expand the time horizon such that you can give yourself a little bit more leeway and you can start to make really small changes that compound on one another over the course of time. So rather than trying to change your breakfast and your lunch and your dinner tomorrow, just change your breakfast. That's it. Change your breakfast, start to make it more fruit centric, start to make it more plant centric and don't change your lunch. Don't change your dinner. Don't have to do anything there. Okay. Just get really comfortable with your breakfast, figure out what do you want to eat? How much do you want to eat? And what do you enjoy eating? And then do that for a week or two weeks or three weeks. When you feel ready and comfortable to move on to the next meal, then you can move on to lunch and repeat that process and so on and so forth. Okay. In that the, the part of the reason why that works is because number one, it, it, allows you to create habits that are likely to stick in the long term. And those habits are going to compound on themselves and they're going to drastically change the, your relationship with food. They're going to change the status of your microbiome. They're going to change your pooping habits. They're going to change your mental health. They're going to change your cardiovascular health. They're going to change your liver health, your muscle health. They're going to change your athleticism. It's going to change everything about you. And all of that stuff takes time and that's okay. Um, the, the last thing I'll say here is that in order for people to actually get a blood glucose reduction and an A1C reduction, like we are suggesting, it's very important that you first subtract fat from your diet before adding carbohydrate. Okay. So I'm not saying that I want you to go to a zero fat diet. It's not even possible. All I'm saying is that I want you to go from eating a diet that contains, call it 50% of your calories as fat, down to 15% of your calories from fat. Okay, so use a diet tracker and- What is, what is the average What is the average diet? Like say the average American diet, what, how much fat would that consist of? About 50%? 42, 42%. <sighs> yeah, Wow. on average. <clears throat> so 42% is considered the quote unquote standard American diet, but a ketogenic diet or a low carbohydrate diet is upwards of 70 to 80%. Wow. I mean, nearly, it's, it's staggering. It's right? nearly nonstop coconut oil. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's absurd. Coconut oil and coconut oil, olive oil. Yeah. And people eating organ meat and beef testicles. It's like, I just don't understand where this stuff comes from. Anyway, long story short, regardless of, of what your baseline total fat concentration is, 40%, 50%, 60%, your goal is to bring it down to 15% and then hold it constant at 15%. And then once it's there, start to add the fruits and the starchy vegetables and the legumes and the whole grains. If you do it that way and you put the sequence of events in that order, then your blood glucose will stay nice and controlled. If you do it the flip opposite way and put a bunch of carbohydrate in before subtracting fat, good luck. Your glucose will go up. Okay. So just for re anyone listening, recap. So precursor, first thing, cut out fat, bring it down from 42, which is a standard American diet, down to around 15, even around there. Once you're kind of comfortable with that, then slowly start introducing the four foods, which you mentioned, which were fruit, starchy veg, um, legumes Beans. and whole grains. Correct. And it's back to when you gave the, the analogy of the uh, insulin resistance where the cells were too full of fat that they couldn't let the insulin or any of the glucose in. It's almost like by cutting out the fat, you're letting the fat to be used and almost getting the cell to 
metabolize all these other fats and then it can go, okay, now I can take some new, I can open up the door again. Yeah, that's exactly right. Because the, uh, you can think of it as though there's an accumulation of excess fat that has occurred over the course of time that's inside of liver cells and muscle cells. And all of that fat ends up accumulating in one region of the cell called the lipid droplet. And the lipid droplet, as it gets larger and larger, it gets more inflamed and it starts to give off all these secondary compounds that can wreak havoc on cell, on, uh, on receptors on the cell surface and on different organelles. So by first subtracting the fat from your diet and going down from, we'll call it 42%, closer to 15%, that, that lipid droplet just gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And as a result of that, it becomes less inflammatory and eventually it will return to a normal physiological size. And as it gets smaller and smaller and smaller, all of a sudden the insulin receptors on that same cell wake up and they're like, Hey, it's time to go talk to insulin again. Let's do this. And then all of a sudden glucose metabolism wakes up and now your blood glucose is much more controllable. You guys know so much about diabetes. Like you really, (laughs) really do. Like you are the masters of diabetes. Like the name of your book and your program is very apt. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you saying that. I mean, I feel like we spend way too many hours talking about this stuff all the time, but the truth is that there's just, I mean, I go back to this over and over again. There's just so much confusion in today's world. And I just, I just wish it would go away. I really do. Well, your work's helping. And and, and even into your program. So how many people have you had through your program? And like, obviously there's an infinite amount of more people that need to go through it because I'd say every day there's more, there's thousands of people being diagnosed with diabetes, but has it, have you impacted a huge amount of people now? Yeah. So our, our actual like ethos of this company is to try and impact 1 million people over the course of time. Try, we positively impact the health of 1 million people and help 1 million people reverse insulin resistance. We will never be able to quantify that number. It is impossible. Mm. Right. And the way that we can do that is by in, in, in <laughs> influencing people who join our coaching program with, you know, direct supervision, plus people that listen to the podcast, people that read the book, people that come to the website, people that see us on other podcasts and blah, 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 blah. Um, People we have worked with um, in a group coaching program or a private coaching program, the number is now greater than 10,000 people. Wow. And we really want to scale that to to be able to directly impact, you know, 100,000 people sometime over the course of the next couple of years. And I do believe that we're on track to be able to do that. And then eventually we'll be, you know, we'll be able to impact even larger numbers of people. So our coaching program is growing. It's growing quickly. We're hiring new coaches all the time. And, you know, there's, there's a, it seems like an insatiable hunger for good quality information. And now is the time for people to start making changes that really stick and completely transform them from the inside out. Well, amazing work. I think it's pretty, so where can people find out more? Masteringdiabetes.org. Masteringdiabetes.org. That's exactly right. Just go there. That's your one-stop shop there. You can learn about the podcast. You can learn about the book. You can learn about our coaching program. You can, um, nice recipes. There's a blog post. There's good blog posts. There's recipes. A great, yeah. Website's nice. I like your, it's just clear. Thank you. One day our recipes will look even half as good as your guys's. Um, <laughs> but we're working our way. You guys eat <laughs> so much standard. fruit. You guys eat so much fruit. It's not as easy to make, you know, there's, there's savory. Not, people normally think of dinner as savory, whereas your guys' dinners is, you know, obviously you do have recipes that are savory as well, but. It's true. It's true. Yeah. I mean, we, we're very fruit friendly over here, but you know, even we have a lot of people who, um, have a more savory tongue. Like my wife is an example. She doesn't love eating that much fruit. She really doesn't. And so she's opened my eyes to the fact that like savory dishes can be very tasty. And so, you know, she's more represents the typical demographic of people who want a savory dinner and beyond. And you're absolutely right. Like, where's you have four the, mangoes the, the and a papaya? Here, 
What's that? Where's you four mangoes of papaya and a head of romaine lettuce or whatever? <laughs> and that's I know, what's wrong with this? <laughs> <laughs> well, lads, you're pretty. Yeah, it's been, I mean, it's, it's been, I think people all oftentimes mistake us for, um, you know, those guys that eat a lot of fruit and I have to eat a lot of fruit or I have to be a raw foodist in order to make this work. And the answer is no we don't even want you to be like hundred percent plant-based if that's not what you're looking for. Like that would be ideal. That's how you get the best results. But I, I do want people to understand that uh, it's always a spectrum. It's always a progression. There's an evolution from your current lifestyle towards a lifestyle that's going to provide you with long, you know, good long-term health. And so if you happen to eat a little bit more plant material today than you did yesterday, great. If you happen to eat a little bit more plant material tomorrow than you did today. Great. You're moving in the right direction. So always just be striving for like a little bit of an improvement and a little bit more fiber rich plant-based material. And you don't, you can't really seem to go wrong. Amazing. Final question. Do you have any um, plans of visiting Ireland soon? Either you. You know, I, I, this morning I was thinking, you know what? We should have done this podcast in person. We'll come in person. We'll do it. We'll create an event. We'll do whatever. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. No, we'd love uh, to we host you. Yeah, no, genuinely, we'd love to host you. Obviously, you know, you'd have to eat lots of greens and vegetables from the farm and we could find your fruits. But uh, yeah, no, we'd genuinely yeah. love to. Yeah, this has been. It's amazing. funny. I went to Ireland. I hope you guys uh, have like, some pears over there. No, we yes, we definitely do. Steve's got loads of pear trees in his garden. So loads of them. <laughs> you guys rock. Thanks, guys. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks, 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 right. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks, 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 Robbie. Thanks, Mind yourselves. Your stars. Cheers. Talk soon, guys. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Cheers. Bye. Thanks, Emil. I love that. Really empowering. Back to the simple message of lifestyle has can have such a positive benefit on your health. Yeah, I loved it. Really, check out what they're doing. They're brilliant on Instagram. They have great content. Uh, check out their Mastering Diabetes book if you're interested in that. And if uh, you hear that little hiccup there in the background, that's little baby Ralph. Yeah, it really, really is. Uh, yeah, thanks for listening to our podcast. We're most grateful for it. We genuinely, genuinely And are. if you'd like to learn more and join our membership platform where all our courses and all our content is, it's brilliant. Yeah, and hopefully someday we do a course with... Um, the lads. Yeah, with the lads. Yeah, really genuinely doing diabetes. So, uh, so thanks, Mel, for joining us. Wishing you a wonderful morning, day, evening, wherever you're at in the world. And uh, bye. Bye-bye. 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 Thanks, Mel. Bye.